not in here. Oh, my goodness. I think Matt and I were joking a second ago that if uh, that's just to make me feel like a real southern preacher when I start sweating a little bit later. I don't have a handkerchief, unfortunately. That's okay. We can also suspend the rules if you like, and if you want to give me a good amen any time during the... I'll feel real like real southern preacher. Thanks. Thanks for the laugh. That's a good start. So, um... I don't know if you all have noticed, but it's wedding season, right? Jennifer and I have to go to four weddings or get to go to four weddings this uh, two months. How many of you have more than four that you're going to? Anybody? We're in the lead. Yes. I figured we might be in the lead. What? I don't know. Just the season in general. Maddie's trying to be like, see if she can get in the lead. (laughs) Anyway, the thing about um, wedding season is that it's got me thinking about the nature of marriage. Right? It's got me thinking about what marriage is supposed to be like. And marriage is the most intimate of relationships. We're called to be vulnerable to one another. We're called to be fully known by one another. We're called to love our spouse so deeply and deeply enough that they feel able to be fully known. They feel loved and honored. Marriage is about love with acceptance. Love despite our weaknesses. Love for who we are. But as Drew was praying and, and I was thinking about it, I, I bet there are people for whom wedding season isn't a wonderful time. I bet there are people who want to be married and aren't. And so they find themselves lonely. Or I bet there are people who want to be married, or who, excuse me, who are married and are bitter, who are angered by the way they've been wronged, who feel like they're not getting what they signed up for. Maybe you're in your marriage and you're thinking about divorce. Maybe you've been through a divorce or know people who are going through a divorce. And when you think about marriage, you think about all the hurt that it can bring. Lest you think we're talking about marriage today, I'm going to bring the point around. Marriage is a tangible example of the way that we are to relate to God. And we all long for that perfect, loving relationship where we are loved despite our weaknesses, where we feel redeemed and encouraged, where we willingly submit to God and find deep fellowship with him. And so I promise you, whatever your thoughts are about relationships or about marriage, our relationship with God has the tendency to break in the exact same ways. And maybe you're feeling refreshed and encouraged in your relationship with God. You're seeking his will and trusting in the surety of his promises for you. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're feeling ashamed or guilty about that sin that you keep falling over and over to. Or maybe you're feeling guilty about that sin that you could never tell anybody about. Maybe you're feeling lukewarm or apathetic and you don't want to seek God anymore. You're just tired of it. Or maybe you're feeling hurt by God. Like he's forgotten you. Like Christianity hasn't come through on the promises that you thought you had when you signed up. And so maybe you've given up and maybe doubt of the surety of God's promises for your, word, for your life has taken over your heart. And you are lost. And while I promise eventually to provide some encouragement today, I'm actually going to bring us down just a little bit more. The root of these broken relationships with God is our fault. And what's worse, it's out of our control. You know that I'm right because you, this week, have tried to muster the strength to be a good Christian. right? You have tried to pray. You have tried to read your Bible. You've tried to live up to your own standards, let alone the standards of God. And we fail at it over and over again. So the fact of the matter is this. 
Sin has real consequences in our life. Sin is breaking our relationship with other people. And what's worse, it's breaking our relationship with God. And no matter how hard we try, we can't fix it. To quote from Alcoholics Anonymous, we have a problem that we cannot control. So the question is, how do we respond to the reality that's really evident to us when we think about it? How do we respond to the reality that our relationship with God is fundamentally broken? The answer is we need someone who can come to God for us. We need someone who can cleanse us from our sin and from our inadequacy, who can fix the broken relationship. To put it in the terms of Hebrews, we need a priest. We need someone who can come to God on our behalf. That's what our text is about today. It's about how we fix our relationship with God. And as promised, I have some good news. God provides a solution that doesn't depend on you, but on the power of the indestructible life of Christ. Let me say it again today, because if you stop listening for the rest of the time, this is the only thing you need to hear. Your relationship with God is broken. It's incomplete and it's imperfect because of sin that separates us from God. But God, in his mercy, has restored our relationship with him forever. He has established the priesthood of Jesus, which is founded on the power of his indestructible life. So let's turn now to Hebrews 7. If you found it, verses 11 and 22, and if you'll stand in honor of God's word while I read. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed for him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So if you're like me, that was crystal clear the first time you read it. Uh, this is a pretty complicated legal and historical section of Scripture that, that we're going to dive into today. And the promise to you is that the work is worth it. Okay? The promise is that we're going to spend some time and we're going to come out the other end encouraged and blessed and hopefully understanding a passage of Scripture that I think we'd tend to skip over if we were left to ourselves. And before we get started, I want to know where we're going. Right? I want to start with the end in mind. I want to have a road map. And where we're going today is Perfection. Look to verse 11. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? So the way the author starts out 
and that he writes this question implies that perfection is obtainable. It's obtainable through a new priest who's not a member of the Levitical priesthood. There aren't any secrets here. The other priest that he's writing about is Jesus, right? And so the point of what he's saying is that through the priesthood of Jesus, perfection can be attained. But that's not really any more clear to me. I wonder what that means. We look to verse 19. It says, The law made nothing perfect, but the new hope, a better hope, is introduced through which we draw near to God. And I think it's here that we gain some insight. I think the point is that the new hope the priesthood of Jesus provides is perfection. And perfection is achieved by drawing near to God. The new hope that the priesthood of Jesus provides is perfection. And perfection is achieved by drawing near to God. And I want to talk about it for a minute because I think it's shocking. I think perfection is shocking to us. Right? As a recovering perfectionist myself, I have come to understand not to expect perfection. I can never do anything or make anything perfect, and so what I come to expect is my best. Right? I, all the time I say, I did my best, and that is good enough. But perfection? I can't really expect that. I think in this one instance we can, though. We can expect a complete relationship with God, a love that is energizing, Fulfilling, faithful, unending, tireless, without condition. We can expect a relationship that is perfect. And it's a relationship that includes our moment of salvation, but it continues in the ongoing relationship that we have with God and culminates in the final glory of heaven. So the fact that this author describes this relationship as perfect, or maybe actually some of your translations say complete, That should wake us up. Pay attention, because what the author of Hebrews is about to say deals with how to restore our relationship with God. How to restore that bitterness, or lukewarmness, or anger, or apathy. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, this text tells us that Christ can restore it to complete perfection. And this text tells us that this perfection is realized, that perfection becomes a reality when we draw near to the most holy God. That's another shocking and remarkable statement, isn't it? That we could draw near to God. We are so far from him because of our sin. There's an infinite chasm that we cannot cross. The Grand Canyon is lined up a million times over, and God is on the one side, and our sin puts us squarely on the other. We've been banished from the Garden of Eden, and at its gate is a cherubim and a flaming sword that turns every way to guard the way back to God. We cannot get back to him, and we are far from him because of our sin. I wonder if you've ever thought about your sin that way, as something that the presence of Almighty God can't tolerate, that you're filthy. And if you were to come into the presence of God in that state, All you would deserve is wrath. You would have death and destruction. And so now we're back to that problem that we can't control. We're sinners. We so desperately need to come into the presence of God. We so desperately long for that perfect relationship. But left to ourselves, we can't do anything about it. This text, though, tells us that we have a better hope. 
We have hope that we are not meant to be eternally separated from God. We have hope that we are not meant to be eternally separated from God because Christ is our priest. He brings us near to God. He restores our relationship with God to perfection. And that's what we're talking about today. That's the roadmap. That's where we're going. But before we can get there and understand it in its entirety, we need to dive into some of the historical and legal arguments that the chapter makes. And I want to start that out by telling you a story. It's about a man named Aaron who uh, was from the tribe of Levi. Actually, he was the great, 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 great grandson of Levi who was a son of Jacob, who was a son of, who was a son of Isaac, who was a son of Abraham. And Aaron was appointed as a priest by God. He was given the authority to make atonement for the people of Israel, which is the churchy way of saying he paid for their sins, right? It was his responsibility to bring the people of Israel to God. And the children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of Aaron became known as the Levitical priests. And that was their responsibility in the nation of Israel, to bring the people near to God. But in order to bring the people near to God, something had to be done about their sin, right? And so God gave them the ceremonial Levitical law. It was given by God to ensure that the priests in all of Israel had their sins cleaned up before they came into the presence of God so that they wouldn't be destroyed in an instant, right? And I I just want to give you a snapshot of that to serve as a backdrop for what we're talking about in Hebrews 7 today, okay? I want to give you a snapshot, and I'm going to paraphrase from Exodus 29 as one of the examples. It's talking about Aaron and his, and his sons who were priests coming into the presence of God. And in order to do that, they had to take a bull and two rams. And they brought with them unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and they made them into a fine wheat flour. Then Aaron got dressed in his priestly garb with the hat and the robes and the sashes. I'm sort of envisioning, embellishing a little maybe. And he was anointed with oil, right? Then... Aaron and the other priests would put their hands on these animals, the bulls and the rams, and they'd be killed. And the, the, there are very specific instructions for how the blood would be sprinkled on the altar of God. And then they would burn the fat and the long lobe of the liver and the kidneys. And then the blood from the rams actually would be put on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on his right thumb and on the big toe of his right foot. And this goes on for a long time in the Old Testament, right? Bringing people near to God is serious business. The ultimate effect of it, though, is this. It comes from Exodus 29, verses 43 and 45. It says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And so here's the point, I think. The people of Israel have the same problem we have. They were sinners. They didn't deserve to be in the presence of God. But God, being merciful and having promised that he would take care of them as his people, put into place a way for the people of Israel to worship him. God ordained the ceremonial Levitical law that allowed the priests to enter his presence and atone for the sins of the people of of Israel. God made a way. The fact that it seems strange to us doesn't really matter. It's what God put in place so that the people could be near to him. And so now we fast forward to Hebrews 7. 
and we're ready to understand this sort of complicated legal argument and logical argument. Maybe the lawyers in the room got it a little faster than the rest of us, but we're going to go through it together. And the punchline of this whole argument from verses 11 to 17, in case you want to doze off in a few minutes when we get to the details, is this. Don't. It's worth your time to stay awake. But um, the point is this. There was an old way of doing things. There was an old way of doing things, and it was designed as a provisional legal system to bring the people of Israel close to God. It was never designed to bring about the completeness of relationship that we're talking about today. It was never designed to bring about the completeness of relationship that God God had in mind for his people. In fact, because of its strict rules and nearly insurmountable requirements, the ceremonial law was designed to point us to something better. So there was a temporary way, a temporary system. But now there is a new way, a permanent way, There is a better hope, and that better hope comes in the form of a new priest, a new priest in the person of Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews gets here in two steps. I want to walk you through it. The first is that the promise of a new priesthood demonstrates that the old priesthood was insufficient. So in other words, why would we need a new priest if the old way was good enough? Why would we need a new priest if the old way was good enough? And the second is that this new priest possesses the priesthood based on the power of an indestructible life, not on the basis of family birthright. So we look to verse 11 again, and it says that if perfection had been attained, what need would there, be, would need would there have been for another priest after the order of Melchizedek? Now, this is what Matt talked about last week, so I'm not going to rehash it um, in its entirety But the short version is that there's this mysterious priest figure who comes and pops up in Genesis and who blesses Abraham and to whom Abraham gives a tithe, right? So there are three things that are clear about Melchizedek. First is that he's a priest. The second is that he is greater than Abraham and therefore greater than Levi. And third, that his priesthood had nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood. He was totally separate from it. So for a new priest to be promised from the line of Melchizedek means that this new priest is different from the Levitical priests. In fact, he's better than the Levitical priests because we are waiting for something more than the Levitical priests could offer. The second part of his reasoning comes in verses 12 to 14. It says that the new priesthood is better because it wasn't obtained through the old way of family birthright. Jesus is from the house of Judah. He was a direct descendant of Judah. Uh, he was not from Le- a direct descendant of Levi. And in order to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be able to draw a line from yourself to Levi. So how did Jesus become a priest? The author tells us in verse 15. It says, This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Here, not because his father was a priest but by the power of an indestructible life. So, the logical conclusion of this two-step argument is this. With a new priesthood, a better priesthood, there must be a better way of doing things. There must be a better way of bringing people close to God. I think it's sort of like having a new chairman at your job or a new CEO or a new project manager. When there's a new boss, there's a new way of doing things. So too with Jesus. He is a new priest. He is not of the line of Levi. So he's not bound by the ceremonial Levitical law that was designed for the Levitical priesthood. 
In fact, he fulfills that law. There is a new priest, and that means the provisional way has run its course. And it's been replaced by the permanent priesthood of Christ. Now, before we get to the permanent priesthood of Christ in a better way, I want to make two comments about the ceremonial Levitical law. The first is that it was designed to accomplish perfectly what it was designed to accomplish. Let me say that again. It was designed to accomplish perfectly what it was designed to accomplish. God never intended to bring his people into the completeness of relationship through the old way. It was a gift from God to his people. It's not like God made a first draft. It's not like God made a beta test and sent it out in the field so that all the bugs would be worked out so that when version 2.0 came around, it was ready. No, God gave the people of Israel the law to atone for their sins. He gave them the law as a gift to bring them into right relationship with him. And he gave them a law that was by design a provisional law, an interim law that was meant to point to something better. The second thing is nothing changes about the revealed will of God. The Old Testament gives us a beautiful picture of who God is. He writes down what's important and helps us to see what he wants from us. Nothing changes about the moral character of God, even though we're no longer bound by the ceremonial Levitical law. And the reason I say that is I was really surprised at first to read in verse 18. It says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Honestly, it's not that the law was a bad thing. It's not that the law was, in fact, completely weak or completely useless. But rather, the law was not designed to bring the people into the completeness of relationship that we're talking about today. And so it was set aside for the promise of a better way. So we're ready to move on to this better way. And before we do, let me just recap for you, okay? The author of Hebrews is looking forward to perfection. He sees the complete wholeness of relationship with God that we so desperately long for and that we were made for. He knows that there was a temporary way, the ceremonial Levitical law, and that wasn't designed to bring us into perfect relationship with God. He's saying to his readers, that way has expired. The time has come for a more complete way. And with that new way comes a new priest, Jesus Christ. The new way of doing things is better. It promises a better hope, and it will bring you near to God. And so we're going to focus the rest of our time on what about the new way is better, and what does that mean for us? First, what does it mean that the new way is better? I've got four things. Um, There are one, God establishes it. Two, Christ accomplishes it. Three, Christ guarantees it. And four, it's forever. So what about the new way is better? God establishes it. Christ accomplishes it. Christ guarantees it. And it's forever. So um, first, God establishes it. As we've often done in our study of Hebrews, we go back to the Psalms for our evidence. And uh, we're quoting Psalm 110, or the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110 here. He says that God established the priesthood of Christ, and when he did, he swore an oath that it would last forever. I think it's sort of a mysterious thing why why God would swear an oath, isn't it? We talked about it some a few weeks ago, but I still think it's challenging to understand why the God of the universe who could create the stars with a word would need to guarantee his word anymore. When he speaks, it is. His speech is powerful to accomplish whatever he wills. So why would we doubt the word of God? 
Why would we need him to take an oath? I think really it's for our benefit. I think it's his way of talking to us in our own language. He's saying, pay attention to this. Wake up. God, the maker of the heavens and earth, is swearing an oath. He's making a promise. He's saying, if what I'm promising doesn't happen, I will cease to exist. And since I can never cease to exist, since I am, this thing that I am promising will come to pass. And so we have confidence in the new priesthood of Christ because God establishes it through an oath. What I think is even more surprising about this is that it's really God who creates the solution to the problem of his own wrath. What we've been talking about today is how to fix our relationship with God, right? And what we know is that we all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve to be separated from him. So what we see when God ordains a priesthood for us, when God gives us a solution to our problem of sin, when God creates a way for us to come near to him, to quote John Piper, we see that the love of God rescues us from the wrath of God. The love of God rescues us from the wrath of God. And what a great hope is that. For just as a pro- we have a problem that we can't control, God gives us a solution that doesn't depend on us. So the answer to the question, what does it mean for you that God established the priesthood of Jesus through an oath? It means you're free. It means that the burden of your sin need not weigh you down because God has made a way that doesn't depend on anything you bring but rather the indestructible life of Christ. So, for example, you're free from your emotion even when you don't feel connected to God, even when you feel far from him, even when you feel discouraged or when you feel doubt or when you feel lukewarm you can turn to God with the confidence that it is his love for you that brings you near to him. God loves you. And I think the call for us this morning is to take him at his word. Because he swore an oath. Believe God. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he will always love you. And believe that that's enough. So for point number two, by the way, now I'm starting to sweat a little bit. Um, we're going to turn to verse 16. It says that Christ becomes a priest based on the power of an indestructible life, based on a life that could not be destroyed. Even though he died, death could not hold him, and Christ rose again from the dead. His life was indestructible. So it's on this basis that Christ receives the priesthood. So going back to our initial assertion, we have a problem of sin and we can't do anything about it, right? We don't deserve to be close to God. But I think the point is that Christ does. Christ deserves to be close to God on the basis of his indestructible life. He had a perfect life. He made a perfect sacrifice for our sins and death could not hold him. His life was indestructible. And on that basis, he deserves the perfect, complete relationship with God that we've been looking forward to. The Levitical priests were given the priesthood, and their qualification was the fact that their fathers were priests. But Christ earned the priesthood based on his track record. He deserved the priesthood because of his perfect life. And so the point is this. If Christ earned the priesthood, if he earned the right to bring us back into presence of God, 
then nothing can ever take it away from him. Let me bring us to verse 22 here to make it a little more clear. It says, This makes Jesus, meaning the power of his indestructible life, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what we've been talking about today, whether you know it or not, is a covenant. A relationship where God promises to be our God and we promise to be his people. And chapter 8 in Hebrews is all about understanding that covenant, and I'm tempted just to cut bait and talk about that for the rest of our time because it's going to be so beautiful. But for now, I want to focus on the promise of a guarantee. What does it matter that Christ is the guarantor of this covenant? Well, it matters because it will never fail. The power of the indestructible life is strong enough to give you a priest that will never fail. Let me give you an example. I wonder, has anybody out there ever bought a bond? Anybody bought a bond? Matt Givens, please. Thank you. Clearly you know about bonds, right? Okay, so the concept behind a bond is that you, that a government or city or country borrows money from you. And they give you a little piece of paper that says, we'll give you some interest on this money, and after a certain period of time, you can have the money back, right? But the security of the investment relies on the security of the entity behind it. So, if you're thinking about buying a bond, I probably wouldn't buy one from the Greek government right now, right? Because we don't think they're good for the money. We think they could default and go bankrupt, and you wouldn't get your money back. It's a risky investment. But if you were to buy a bond from the United States, it's much less likely to fail, right? We believe that good old Uncle Sam is good for the money. His credit is good. In the same way, the power of an indestructible life is now ensuring your covenant with God. Christ is unshakable, and his resurrection proved it. Not even death could hold him. So he is risen. He is your priest, and he brings you close to God. And you can trust him. Why? Because he will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. His credit is good. His foundation is sure. Christ will never go bankrupt. The mighty power of Christ will not let you down. And so the final point today about the power of the indestructible life and the priesthood of Jesus is that it's forever. And while I'm tempted to preach here for a long time, it's going to be the focus of next week's sermon, and I don't want to steal Matt's thunder because it's beautiful. One of the new features of the priesthood of Jesus is that it will never end. Unlike the Levitical priests who had term limits and were subject to sin and death, Christ will be a priest forever, and his priesthood will never fail. It will continue on until it has accomplished its ultimate purpose, and Christ returns in glory. Let's look to verse 25 to see where we're going next week. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's where these last two weeks have been building to, and that's where we're going next week. The reason it matters that the priesthood of Christ is established through the power of an indestructible life, the reason that it matters that Christ is guaranteeing your relationship with God, the reason that it matters that the priesthood of Christ will never fail is that you can be free to come to God exactly as you are. God promises to love you, and his love for you is not conditional on living a sinless life. He already knows you're a sinner, and he has made a way for you to be in relation with with him regardless of that. So I think the question is, where does it leave us today? 
And the answer, I think, is simple. Ask Jesus to bring you near to God. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's not a Jesus saved me one time and now I'm on my own for the rest of my life and I hope I get it right. No, God restores the relationship with him through the priesthood of Christ. It includes salvation, but it also includes the time after salvation when we're waiting to see God in his glory. And it culminates in the glory of heaven. When he comes again, we're worshiping the almighty and holy God. And so it means for us that Christ is your priest no matter where you are in your relationship with God. It means that Christ is committed to you. I think it also leaves us with a deeper understanding of what we're meant for. One of the reasons that this text is hard for me to understand isn't just because it's a complicated legal argument. It's because I have no idea what a priest is. I don't know, I have really bad visions of what priests are, mostly related to mafia movies, right? So like the mob boss goes in, the priest says, you're blessed, and he goes out and he kills somebody else, right? And so the concept of a priest for me is someone who just sort of pays for a sin and then walks away and pays for it again so that we can sort of justify the way that we want to live. That is not what the priesthood of Jesus is about. And while we sort of laugh at the mafia concept, I don't think we're really that far off. We sort of see Jesus as a genie in a bottle, right? Who, if we do things, if we ask him in just the right ways, we'll get exactly what we want. Or he'll pay for our sins, but then we can just go on living exactly the way that we used to live. That's not that far off for me. And so the point, I think, is this. The end of the relationship with Jesus, the point of it, the purpose of it, is to bring us near to God. And when we're brought near to God, we will be changed by him. For how could you draw near to a holy God and not be? And so the way that we framed this discussion today was a problem of sin, right? And so don't pray to Jesus to get rid of your sin. Pray to Jesus to bring you near to God. And then he will write the law on your heart and you will worship him. I wonder where you are this morning. Maybe you don't know God. Maybe you feel like you can't know him because something in your life is keeping you back. Well, Christ is your priest. Just ask him and he'll bring you near to God. And maybe you know God, but you're ashamed of who you are. Maybe you're ashamed of what you've done and you're full of guilt and you've forgotten what it's like to be near to God. Maybe you so desperately want it, but feel like you can't have it because of your sin. Well, Christ is your priest too. Ask him, and he will bring you near to God. And maybe you're angry at God. Maybe you doubt his love. And maybe you could never see him wanting to be near you again. And maybe you don't want to be near him again. But I think if you ask yourself how you're really feeling, you're going to find that you desperately long to be in relationship with God. And Christ is your priest too. Christ will bridge that gap that you feel between yourself and God. He will bring you near to God. Listen, the power of an indestructible life is enough to restore our relationship with God. The priesthood of Christ is sufficient to save you from your sin. And so we've gone from a problem that we can't control, from being separated from God, to a solution that doesn't depend on us, to being drawn near to him in a perfect, complete relationship. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God, and the love of God is made manifest in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful word. Thank you that you are our priest. 
that you come to God on our behalf and restore a fundamentally broken relationship. How desperately we long to know you. How desperately we need you. Would you come now into our hearts? Help us to see you for who you are and help us to approach Christ on the basis that he can restore the relationship. He can restore it to complete perfection. Oh God, help us to trust in Jesus, for we so desperately need him. It's in your name we pray. Amen.